0: Welcome,
1: everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview folks who are inspired by math and who are inspiring other people. I am really delighted this morning to be having a a phone conversation with David Reimer, author of a new Princeton University press book, Count Like an Egyptian. David, welcome.
0: Hi, it's nice to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I am really delighted to have you. On this podcast, I, you know, have read lots and lots and lots of math books. I really tend to, towards the the more sort of the recreational um, math books rather than the the heavy hitting, you know, analysis and and calculus and set theory kinds of books. And Princeton University Press sends me a bunch of books. And when they sent me your book, Count Like an Egyptian, I instantly fell in love with the book in particular i love what i would call arithmetic tricks i love being able to look at computation problems and find patterns and make them simple and um and your book does does that in spades so wonderful book i'm excited to talk to you about it
0: thank you very much i mean i really worked hard on making it a math book so many books about math they talk about the people they talk about the background but they don't actually have you do any math but i also tried to present it as in a lighter tone as easy to follow step by step
1: yes and i will i will be a testimonial that it was easy to go through step by step and do some of the um calculations and you know i i am intrigued because um Th- these calculations that I'm going to talk about um, with you a little bit more later, um, they really mirror how computers in, you know, in binary do arithmetic, and I'm going to ask you about that um, a little bit later. Um, let me read a little bit of your, your background. You sent me a bio, which I think is, is really cool, and this, this, of course, will be in the blog article. It says, in high school, I was a mediocre student at best. You did, and I'm not going to read this verbatim, but you did great on the SAT, passed a number of AP exams without taking the courses, just from the study guides. You started out as a computer science major at Colgate, um, but basically found you knew more than your professors, at least in practical computing, you say. Um, You were interested in physics got the school's award for the best freshman physics student, and you say you settled eventually on math as everyone in your family did. So, so tell me a little bit about that. Who, who Who's doing what in I, your family?
0: And I math. actually tried to avoid math. You know, when you're a kid and you're a little rebellious and your father did math, your mother did math, your brother who was in college did math. I tried to stay away from it, but it, I don't know. It just seemed to pull me in uh, just where my interest lied. I liked physics, but, I don't know, I eventually grew a little tired of it and was happy to go back into math.
1: Oh, very cool. Was um, was there, is there, was there, is there a particular type of math that, that you really enjoyed?
0: Well, I, I'm a discrete mathematician now, so courses like combinatorics, some part of abstract algebra, were very appealing to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I can see how that... Um, relates to your book um let's see also in the bio you sent me and and this really piqued my interest you said over the summers you worked at creative computing which was then the largest computer magazine in the world among other places that you worked and um in the late 70s i bought my very first personal computer an ohio scientific challenger 1p i don't know if, if that rings a bell or not I've heard of it. And it was a you know, really, really simple machine. It had came with 4K of memory, and I saved money you know, um, working um, during the summers to um, plunk down $300 to get another 4K of memory into yeah. that machine. This is not yeah. gigs. This is not megs. This is 4,000 bytes, You know, 4,096 um, 4, bytes of memory, a tiny amount of yeah. memory.
0: Uh, my first computer was an Apple II, a, li- a little more advanced than that, but not much. And then I uh, graduated to a Commodore 64 with 64K of memory. And that everyone considered that to be the top of the line. Couldn't, we couldn't possibly get any better than that. Huh. I, but- I remember my father came home way before that. He had a calculator. No one had ever seen one before. But he, did it, he needed it for work, and it was $500, and it could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And $500 in those days is probably like $2,000 today.
1: I know. That, that is remarkable. But what, what in particular caught my interest is when you mentioned creative computing, because I remember when I, was, when I bought that Ohio Scientific computer, um, mm-hmm. I, I quickly taught myself basic, and then I taught myself machine language. And I had to do 6502 machine language and not assembler at first, because with 4K of memory, you couldn't load an assembler. Into that machine, so I was mm-hmm. poking, right. you know, um, hexadecimal opcodes into uh-huh. the into the monitor. But I subscribed um, for some time to Creative Computing magazine, and I remember very vividly having um, a book by a fellow David All A H L yep. that 101 yep. Basic Computer Games.
0: Yep, I remember that book.
1: Yeah. So was he the you know, so was he the publisher of creative computing or what was his connection with he was
0: I, I don't remember i was a. you know was a, this is like 40 years ago he was an uh, upper person there uh, there were a number of people who ran the company we were kind of the uh, uh what would you call it the minimum wage workers who checked out the programs make sure they ran we uh, proofread stuff we programs that had bugs in them we answered questions from technical questions from people who called in things like that
1: oh very very cool anyway so I was
0: excited so we, that, we were the, you know, we were young then so we, all around 18 yeah and,
1: uh, yeah so know, I think we right were just glad we were
0: we were uh, I guess you'd call them tech geeks and uh, the very first of our kind and uh, you know most people didn't understand any of it but yet we seemed to know all of it I know those were yeah. the days, and you could know everything.
1: I, that, that's yes, that's right. You could know everything because there was so much less to know. And um, mm-hmm. but it was it was a great time. The seventies, um, late seventies, was a great time to get into mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, personal computing. And and for me personally, it has served me really well. You know, because forty years later, well, or thirty-five or so years later, I am still I'm in the computer industry. I'm making a good living. Um, so those experiences have Put, you know, putting up with a 4K machine with just a machine language <laughs>
0: yeah. monitor
1: um, has paid off.
0: Yeah, I, I know. I could read and write in hexadecimal. I knew every bit on the machine. I knew it backwards and forwards. I would say, though, I, I think that in many ways I'm better than your average mathematician simply because of my computer background. Uh, writing programs organizes your thoughts. It gets you to think symbolically. I, I Really wonder today, with people tending not to take programming courses, uh, how much that takes away from the math experience. That is a great question.
1: Yeah, I have I have not considered that at all, but certainly being grounded in the very low level computer stuff has been really useful um, mm-hmm. to me in my career. In fact, I'm not like I, I can do a little bit of Java programming. It's not my forte, and it's not my favorite thing to do. I, I, you know, tend to like the Unix stuff, the shell commands, the, you know, sort of the low-level kinds of things because right. that's what I grew up with and that's what what I'm grounded in and it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's see. So also in your bio, you said you worked for a company, you spent six months on a project, the company canceled it, they refused to pay you, you were desperately needing money, so you found yourself teaching night school calculus it's like okay that's that's different
0: yeah um, it was just at a community college I you know didn't have anything except my BA in mathematics but somebody's uh, somebody knew somebody who worked there and they said they always needed adjuncts so I tried it I was I was really nervous and as soon as I walked in I just took to it naturally and uh, it was so easy. It was weird because it was a night school, and I was literally the youngest person in the room because everybody had jobs. You know, I was just out of college. Uh, they were all going back to school, but it, it, it worked well, and I just couldn't believe how easy it was for me and how well I, fe- I fell right into it. And I knew I belonged as a teacher, so I studied for the GREs and then applied to grad school.
1: That's pr- that, yeah, that, that, that is really cool. Um, And you were teaching calculus, no less, which is not, you know, not the easiest subject, but, you know, by far. Right. Um, Right. And it says you got into the graduate math program at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. Um, The department noticed your teaching skill gave you higher level classes, including a 300 level course. So that's 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 also quite impressive. Um, So you're quite the math geek. Yeah, to (laughs) to say the least um all right and then let's see you finished your phd thesis while making some money as a full-time instructor first at rutgers and then at middlesex community college and there you found out that your proof and i don't yeah i don't this is way beyond me the 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 vandenberg keston conjecture Whenever that is, and, and see if if you can use your teaching skill to explain it in a way that even I can understand it. But it, it won the Polya Prize in discrete mathematics, which is given every four years to what is considered to be the best work in discrete math during that period. So that's an amazing accomplishment. So yes. Yeah, so what is the Vandenberg Keston conjecture?
0: It's it's a little hard to explain over the over you know uh, just voice, but it has to do with probabilities. So you have a bunch of events. The easiest model to understand it is imagine you had a stack of aces, a stack of twos, a stack of threes, and so on for each card. And I have a certain set of hands that I like. So I might win if there's three jacks or two clubs or something like that. You have your cards that you like that are winning conditions. Now, our cards are, can be... we we Our choices could be independent. Independent means things that have nothing to do with each other. So uh, if it's Tuesday, if one out of seven days is Tuesday and one out of three days is cloudy, you would expect uh, one out of 21 days to be a cloudy Tuesday. That's independent. They have nothing to do with each other. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know if your choices and my choices are independent. But there is one rule, and that is anything that I want, if I like something and I want to win with it, you can't win with those cards so if I choose something I like you can't choose the same thing now we can work together to try to find uh, different hands that we both like that are disjoint but we're not guaranteed to be able to find one and it says that the probability that you and I could both win is worse than independent meaning that our choices somehow conflict and Hmm. it's to a mathematician, if you think about it, it's, it's uh, you have to think about it for a while, but it almost seems like an obvious proposition, because if we have to fight over which cards we use, of course we're conflicting and making it less than independent, that our choices drive mm-hmm. each other's choices away. But no one had been able to prove it for like 20 years. And then I took up the problem. I didn't even realize how hard it was supposed to be when I took If I had known that this was a famous problem and no one had been able to solve it, I probably never would have picked it up as, as a graduate student. But I came up with a solution, a very unusual solution, and it uh, and, and get, was getting ready to publish it. I hadn't even published it at the point. I was hoping just to get an article out so, you know, I could get a job. And then all of a sudden, I'm told that I won the best prize in my field, the best award in my field, which was uh, quite a shock to me.
1: Well, that 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 is that is a great story. I mean, what what was the movie? Was it Goodwill Hunting? Mm, yeah, right. The the, the the you know the young, the, you know, the janitor at MIT.
0: And right, right, right.
1: Start getting into these problems, and you know, and it was probably a good thing he didn't know that that some of these were famous unsolved problems. Yeah, yeah. That 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 kind of thing, and. And you and like when you said, yep, you were trying to get a job, and then you finish your your bio with saying based on this theorem or on your proof of the theorem, I got what most would call a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where where yeah. Einstein and and I should add, right, many you know many many, many renowned before. mathematicians have have worked there or have been through. That um, that's that's a remarkable place, um, and then. Then you got a job at the College of New Jersey, where, where you are today. Yep. That is, that is a great introductory story. Um, so, so tell our listeners, you are a math professor, so what do you profess? What subjects? What levels?
0: I, I teach at all levels. Uh, for a long time, I've been teaching the Introduction to Proof course, which is kind of like the first theoretical course uh, a math major takes. I, of course, like everybody, teach calculus, and I teach combinatorics because that's my specialty. But uh, I, I pretty much teach whatever they need. So uh, I, I do duty on a lot of things like number theory and abstract algebra.
1: Very cool. Do, do you know a, a mathematician, James Tanton? No, I don't. Okay, so um, he's is, he is a mathematician. He's He's one of my... My, my heroes, but he got a PhD in math at Princeton. Very mm-hmm. very very brilliant guy, and went on for a number of years to teach at a private high school. So he was teaching high school math oh, really mm-hmm. with a PhD from Princeton. So the, it, your story is kind of reminiscent of his because here you are, you know, with with a tremendous amount of mathematical skill, and you're writing a book count like an Egyptian, which is basically for. <laughs> Um, I would say probably motivated middle school kids.
0: That's right. I mean, could, middle could school this. on up. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, this may sound counterintuitive, but I've always found that the smarter the people are, the easier they are to understand. You, talk, you go to a talk by a mid-grade mathematician, and he just throws up all sorts of symbols. He says the usual things. But... At Rutgers, a lot of exceptionally smart people pass through. There are a lot of uh, prize winners there, especially in discrete math. And I always found that when these great minds come through, you think they're going to blow you away with what they say, and you won't be able to follow it, and yet you you understand every single word. Uh, I think that you have to understand it enough to simplify it, in terms that you can deal with the, the people who have trouble with that they rely too much on the standard symbols the theorems they don't understand the theorems what they're trying to do and all they can do is repeat you know word by word everything they've memorized whereas the people who really understand it can simplify it get to the important points skip over the nonsense that just you know is just tedious computation and really get to the point so, I honestly think it's not a, a coincidence. I think the better mathematicians always make the best teachers.
1: That is I have never heard that, and I, I'm going to pay attention now as i in my travels as i as I encounter these folks, I, I do remember somebody saying once that you know you don't truly understand something unless you can explain it to a five year old. and that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's sort of in the direction of what you're saying.
0: But it is true. Uh, I can remember uh, reading about a study where they were taking kids who were bad at mathematics, and what they did is they turned them into tutors for the previous year students. And they said that the, the, the tutoring students, their grades shot up. Just the very act of put, being forced to put something in words to explain things forced them to understand it rather than trying to memorize it or do an answer step-by-step, step. and uh Ask anyone when did you actually learn the learn that subject well, and they'll tell you it's the day the day I taught it. It really changes you when you're forced to put something in words at a simple primal level.
1: Yes, I, I and I've had that experience of, of teaching. Um, I mean, not formally teaching math, but I've led math circles and such, where I have really had to go deep to make sure I really understood something, and and to be able to communicate it simply enough for sure um all right so your book is about egyptian computation although uh, although you do go into other um you know roman and other mathematical sumerian and other systems um towards the end of the book but um before we jump into the book how did you get interested enough in egyptian computation to write a whole book about it
0: uh, it, was, it was actually a coincidence. Uh, I got into uh, the College of New Jersey, and a year later, the professor who taught history of math retired. Nobody wanted to teach it because it's not something that you learn in grad school. We all learn all the basic subjects. We've all taken all the basic subjects. And because I was low man on the totem pole, who of course was going to be, you know, looking for tenure, uh, I didn't feel comfortable saying no. Uh, I took to history math as soon as I, I started teaching it. I found that I enjoyed it. Uh, my in-depth study of, of Egyptian mathematics happened when a, a colleague of mine pointed out that I was doing things wrong. Uh, I, you told me, we'll get back to this, but I was doing Egyptian math almost exactly the way computers do, because that's the way I understood it. And she pointed out that I was actually doing something a little backwards. So I went to the history of math books that were on my shelf and then read their Egyptian parts, and it didn't really explain things very well. So I got a copy of Chase's uh, The Rhine Papyrus, which has a translation of the, The Rhine Papyrus, which is the one book, or I should say scroll, of Egyptian math that we have. And I just studied it like it was a textbook. And as I went through it, I felt I'd gained an understanding. And when I went back and looked at my old math history books, just to say, oh, now I'll really understand it, I really got the feeling that they didn't get the point. And uh, that's what inspired me to write the book.
1: You know, and, it, and, it's, and it's interesting because somewhere, I can't remember if it was in the book or in some conversation on the web about the book, I think you made the point that the people who wrote... About Egyptian mathematics, often got caught up in the detail and in the minutia of it, and didn't That's see right. the bigger picture. Which, which is a theme that that we talked about just a couple of minutes ago.
0: Absolutely. And so they they would fo- they would go from here's a problem, and they'd say, oh well, this is an equation that they might have used to solve this problem. Well, first of all, equations didn't exist uh, five thousand years or four thousand years ago when this book was written. Uh, in fact, equations are, are fairly recent development, and they wouldn 't understand that the whole system was related, that all the parts had to be related, work together, and you can 't understand something. you can 't take a, like a, a organ, you know an organ out of a creature and expect to understand the creature by just looking at details of that one piece and uh, it 's not that they were wrong in what they said necessarily, but their their outlook was misguided. And they missed the big picture.
1: Yes, right. I, I get I get that as a theme. So, so tell us about the book. What is it about? And I think we already talked a little bit about the the audience. You know, I guess being motivated middle school kids and beyond. But mm-hmm. so, so what's the book about?
0: Uh, the book literally teaches you Egyptian math. It's a primer in Egyptian math. But I try to make uh, broader points. The reason I think Egyptian math is interesting is that it's completely alien to what we do. Uh, we always assume that there is a way to do multiplication, there are ways to write numbers and so on. And Egyptian, Egypt was in a, a unique situation where they were basically isolated from the rest of the world. They were surrounded by deserts, a sea at a time where sea travel was dangerous. And so they developed in their own way, independent of, say, Mesopotamia, where our form of mathematics developed out of. And because of this, they went on their own path. And when you first see it, it just seems incredibly wrong, just because we've been brainwashed to believe that there's a right way to do things and other ways must be wrong. But when you get into it, you begin to appreciate what they do, Uh, the the methods are often surprising like you'll get the answer very quickly and at first you'll wonder how could that have worked it just was too easy it was too short but it's a beautiful thing to see something unexpected unusual and it still works as a whole system
1: Mm Hmm. yeah i i I certainly had had my moments of delight doing some of these um calculations And 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 i should you know, say the obvious for listeners. This book, and probably you know, every other math book. You know, right? Math is not a spectator sport. You really, um, and in particular this book, you really have to you know get get some paper and and some pencils and and actually do the computations. You can't just glance through the pretty pictures. And there are lots of really <laughs> really nice um, color illustrations. But 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 you've got to do the You've got to do the exercises, and, and I don't think they're particularly hard. They're simple, but there is some depth and some, I don't know how to say it. There's there's a different way of thinking that it exposes itself as you do more and more of these problems.
0: Yeah, What you find out is the deeper you go into it, it's more and more like a puzzle. It's less and less like a routine where you say, do this step, do this step, do this step. So in the hands of someone who's skilled, you can get remarkably simple answers. In the hands of someone who just tries to do it mindlessly without thinking, they can get stuck, their their solutions can get longer and longer. Uh, That's actually one of the things I like about it. When I give a test on it and I ask a problem, I'll always be surprised by how many different solutions I get to it. My students will give me something like seven different solutions to the same problem, but they almost all get it. They get it very quickly. Students take to this very well. In fact, I would say at least half the students in my history of math class say it's their favorite subject.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can I I can believe that. And as I was preparing for this interview, I I did what I usually do and go Google around and see what people are saying about you and what what they're saying about um, the book. And one reviewer said this. He said. Of course, our system is more apt for us or for machines to do calculations just following recipes, which need no insight or wit, but what we lose is that the Egyptian system keeps the practitioner sharp, forcing him or her to think about the problem and the result of the calculations. I think that speaks very well to what you just said.
0: That's exactly the the right point I was trying to make, is that they don't have a thing to do. They have a set of tools, and then you have to decide which tool is most appropriate for the task at hand. And that sounds hard, but when you practice it, it begins to become second nature. And so you have at any point seven different things you can do, and the one that you choose will either make the answer simple and fast or awkward and terrible. I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of authors, especially in the old days, were so down on Egyptian math because you really need to understand it to appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and i'm I, I'm very intrigued because when when I was in junior high school and I was very interested in you know um, math puzzles, I had a very good math teacher, and she gave me some exploration to do with um, Egyptian fractions. Right, and those, right so, so writing numbers as, as the sum of fractions where the numerator is one, you know, in, in integer fractions, mm-hmm. denominators are mm-hmm. integers. And, and, you know, and it was interesting. I, can't, I cannot remember any details of what that exercise was, but certainly at, at, at that time in the late 70s, I don't think there was a whole lot really understood about right. how deep Egyptian mathematics um, could go. In fact, I think even mm-hmm. before your book, um, I, I have not, never really discovered very much about um, Egyptian computation. So this, this is really mm-hmm. new work, as far as I can tell, even if it is a, a synthesis and a deepening of, of work that others have already done.
0: Yeah, well, it's all, you know, most of the pieces, the things that I talk about are there. They're just not put together as a whole system, at least not anything I've found.
1: Right, um, yeah. So, so you studied the Rhine Papyrus, and, and, and you said a, a few minutes ago that that there is what? So there's one translation.
0: There there are a number of translations, but the best one I found was one written by a, a guy named Chase C H A C E. Unfortunately, it's out of print. Uh, I really like it. it the the Analysis up front suffers from what most analysis suffered from. The book. it really is a book, and you treat it as a textbook, and that's how I learned. Literally going through problem by problem, one at a time. The the interesting thing was when I first went through it, I was a good enough mathematician that I'd always get the right answer. But then I'd look at their answer, and their answer was always better than mine. It was shorter. It was you know it was more elegant, and that's where I really learned the difference of is I would stare at their answer and say, "What are they seeing that i 'm not seeing? Why did they go in this direction that seems completely random at the time yet got them the better answer and as I thought about it, I began to get insight into it, and I put those insights in the various chapters of my book
1: okay is yeah'm as you're as you 're sharing this i'm i'm going on the web and trying to to find this this Chase translation of the papyrus, it's not even easy to find, like on Amazon.
0: No, no, it's it was it's been out of print for years. I, I've got a copy from my school library. Uh, they're very angry at me. <laughs> I've had it for about seven years now. Uh, I keep getting threatening letters from them, but I don't want to give it back. Well, how
1: how how many pages is this book? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, is it try. 100 pages, a 1, thousand pages? About 100. Okay. So, there there so.
0: isn't much besides the translation. I mean, that's the majority of the book, and you know, and a papyrus can only be so long. It's kind of neat that they'll have the translation. They'll actually show you the heretic, the way it was written in Egyptian, and then next to it will be the uh, mathematical translation. Mathematical translations are always very problematic, by the way, because in the old days, people didn't write very much. So they don't explain a lot. So there's often debate. I can, I've can i seen two translations of the same work where they say radically different things. Uh, they just, I don't know, they spoke like, kind of like Frankenstein, you know, very guttural, me do this, and they don't do a lot of, you know, uh, elaborating on what they're doing or why they're doing it. So people tend to write into what they see in it, which is you have to do it because you have to give some context, but it also means you have to be a little careful because you're never sure what's you and what's them.
1: Right, right, sure. Right, you always put something of yourself into a translation. Absolutely. And and how long did you spend, so you, you know, from the time that you got a copy of this of this translation of the papyrus until you had a draft of your book how long did that
0: take oh god uh it it took me about five years to to to, to do it all uh one of the things i did though was as i started writing it i would start testing it out on students so i would give them let them go through it i would uh then interrogate them, you know, in a nice way, and try to figure out what they got and what they didn't get. And so, when I realized they didn't understand something, I would go back and rewrite that section. So this book, it didn't take me more than a couple of years to write, but it took me many years of editing to get it down to the form that I liked. I also spent a lot of time drawing those illustrations, uh, which I think paid off because it makes a beautiful book.
1: Yes, the the illustrations. I think are, are are a huge draw And having them you know having the book with you know glossy paper full color um illustrations I think makes a huge difference
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for yeah they originally wanted to publish it in black and white, and when I was told that my heart just sank because I had put so much effort into the into the pictures but uh, I guess pictures are now a lot cheaper than they were a few years ago
1: yeah yeah they 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 did a good job in you know, in in printing this. All right, so so jumping in a little bit into some of the um, computation and and there's no way that certainly for me without practice that I could explain how any of this computation um, works. I'm sure you could you could do an infinitely many infinitely better job at this um, th- than I can. But um, I was very intrigued early on with early in the book with the notion of how you do multiplication and it basically reduces to making two columns of numbers and you're you know you're doubling you're you're doing some doubling of numbers and you are adding so basically the point here is you can take a child and if the child can add numbers and the child can double numbers the child can do multiplication
0: that's right uh, when I teach this in, in, at college level, now, granted, college level students are at a higher level than your typical child, but I can teach them how to multiply numbers in about 5, 10 minutes, and they can do it very quickly and very well. When you compare that to the amount of time a second grader spends, uh, spending months and months trying to memorize their multiplication tables, uh, dealing with longer numbers, where to put things, where to place things. It sounds easy to us, it just, but that's because we banged our head against the wall for like two years trying to learn long multiplication. And it's just bizarre that within five minutes, you can be sitting there multiplying numbers very easily and uh, without any memorization whatsoever, except how to add a number to itself because that's what doubling is.
1: Right. That's right. So that yes, so that's right. Really with just you know I mean we, we all you know say without thinking very very hard about it well multiplication is just repeated addition. Mhm. Well but, but here's a nice concrete example where it really is. Just you're right. Doubling is just adding a number to itself and then you you add some of these doubled numbers together and mm-hmm. And you get your answer so do you have any idea of why it is or how it is that the cross multiplication system that, that that we all learned is so entrenched where where something so much simpler you know doesn't have any traction
0: well the system we use today was developed in Mesopotamia about the same time that the Egyptian math was being developed and they use a base-60 system. not the system We use a base system today, 10, 10 system today, but they use the base-60 system, which is almost identical to what we do just in base-60. Uh, interestingly enough, we still use that system, we just don't realize it. So if we want to say what's uh, 3.5, we'd say 3.5, because 5 is half of 10. But if a Babylonian were to say 3.5, they would say 3.30, But this is exactly the way we do time, three and a half hours, 3.30, right? So we're doing time in the Babylonian system without realizing that system is just carried through to this day. Now, I can't say why people always pick the Babylonian system, but I can guess. The Babylonians were famous for being astronomers. And this is where most of the mathematics, except for simple accounting, has been for thousands of years. Almost every mathematical discovery, until up in, including the time of Newton, was motivated by the need to do astronomy and astrology. It was considered so important in its time. So with astronomy, you need lots of fractions, because uh, you divide the sky into 360 degrees, you divide those into smaller units, you divide time into hours and minutes, And those were all Babylonian decimals. But when you're doing astronomy, you don't need an exact answer. You can't get an exact answer. If I point to a star and say, how high is it? I can say, oh, it's about 32 degrees up. But I can never give you a precise answer. In a system where rounding is done automatically, the decimal system isn't bad at all for multiplication because you just have a uh, a few decimal points you treat it just like a whole number multiplication, and then you just learn the where to place the decimal point when you're done. So I think it was the Babylonian astronomy. Babylonian astronomy was taken up by the uh, Greeks who who uh, the book we know was from Tol, a, a guy named Ptolemy, who basically wrote the the, the the standard text on how to model the universe. Using mathematics, or the solar system using mathematics. His book uh, made it into the hands of the Arabs when the Muslims uh, rose to power around, I think it was something like 600 AD. They carried it into India, and so everyone has been using base 60. That's why we use base 60 for angles and time today, because that was the prime use for astronomy. But it was the Hindus who then adapted the multiplication to their base ten, so they stopped multiplying in base sixty, and then from the Hindus it traveled back to the Arabs, and then in the Renaissance through the Crusades it traveled back into the European world. So it's it's a very convoluted route that this this our mathematics took getting to us. Okay, but, but okay. for astronomy, it did the advantages of. Uh, it, Egyptian math are not as important. Egyptian math is get, good at getting exact answers. And if you care about getting exact answers, Egyptian math is good. If you care only about rounding like 3.14 for pi, decimal math works well too. And since most math was done for astronomy, and that's why everybody kept learning it to do astronomy, it, it carried from one book to the next, where so they kept carrying on the same procedures.
1: Very interesting. So that's that's where it's useful to, to have a background in, in the history of math. I I, I appreciate your your you're sharing that.
0: I hope um, I didn't go too long in that.
1: No, no. I think I think that's great. I think it's uh, um, I you know history has never been my forte, but but I, I mm-hmm. can see that you've got a, You know an interest in it. And you and you understand some of the the nuances and and that's great. So for calculations that are, that are more likely to be the kinds of things, the kinds of calculations that most of us would want to do if, if we're trying to, I, I can't think of good examples, but you know, we're going to the store, we're figuring out our bills, right, right. We're, you know, we're not charting the, the orbits of planets or figuring out where stars are or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. so the egyptian system um could be much better and in particular it seems that young kids could learn to multiply much sooner without the 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 pain of memorizing multiplication tables
0: oh absolutely they literally would take them no time at all Uh, i keep hearing back from people who read the book and go to their kids you know who are like seven years old and they, they pick it up right away
1: yeah, I, th- I think it would be delightful to somehow get courses in Egyptian arithmetic for the young ones and and mm-hmm. have people teach them all over the world. I think it would be a lot of fun. Maybe maybe that's a calling for you. <laughs>
0: um, we'll see. We'll see. They actually do teach a little Egyptian math now, or at least some standards are recommending it, because the, the big thing now is alternate, alternative strategies. And so... Uh, I know that some kids are doing it. I know some, because t- I teach people who are going to be teachers, and they often show the kids Egyptian math just as a, like a little side thing, and then some of them say that on tests they see kids doing computations in Egyptian math on the side to get their answers. So they, p- they pick it up, you know, on their own. Once they're taught it, they start using it just because they think it's easier.
1: Well, y- yes, I mean, you know, speak of easier, this is the way computers do... Arithmetic And it's got to be, at some level, it's got to be really simple for computers, because basically computers do arithmetic, right? They're, they're doing shifts, which is basically doubling of numbers, and they're adding yeah, yeah. in order to yeah. do a multiplication. But a little bit of an aside, I'm curious. Uh, do you have any experience with, with the Vedic mathematics system?
0: I know very little about it. I've, I've read some things, but not, not gone in too deep into it.
1: Yeah, because that's, that's a very alternate system, and I have dabbled with it, and, and there are definitely quite a number of gems in that mathematical system. And, I, and I'm curious mm-hmm. to see if someday um, Egyptian mathematics becomes as prominent as, as one of the non-major you know, math systems of today. You know, Vedic math seems to no- get a fair amount of press.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate because there's a lot of cultures that really get uh, the short end of the stick when it comes to history of math. I, I'm not one of these people who says that every culture should be examined, but there are some that really have done a lot, have done important things, but people don't don't seem to mention it. Uh, India is huge, because they basically developed our number system, how to multiply, how to divide. They invented the concept that zero is a number and not a, just a simple concept of nothingness. Uh, they did a lot of things. The Arabs did a lot. They extended astronomy. Uh, they were the first people to do math the way we do. The Greeks did it all theoretical. The Babylonians were all computational, as well as the Hindus. The, the Arabs were the first people who kind of mixed demonstration of proof with practical problems, and so on. When you open a textbook today, you're basically looking at the Arab version of the way math is done. We we don't realize this, but the word algebra, the al, like you always hear al in front of an Arabic name, that's what it is. That al in algebra and the al in algorithm is God because they believe that all things should start with God. Ah. So they're, they're long words, they're... The algebra is the name of the person who wrote the book, but it's re- his name is really long. I forget. It's like Al Jabar something something something, and I can imagine a, a student looking at it and trying to say the name. They just go, "Heck, algebra," like that, and that's, that's where you get your word algebra from.
1: Oh, very, yes, very very cool. I am curious if you can speak to right. So so computers do arithmetic with, with zeros and ones, and with very simple operations. Do you right. do you know anything about the history of how computer algorithms, there's the, the AL word, computer yeah. algorithms were developed to do arithmetic? And there's there, there seems to be a parallel to Egyptian math, and in fact on the web, and I, I'll, I'll put this in the notes um, that go with this podcast, there, there is a, a a video by a mathematician Michael um, Snyder, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. um, who, who who draws the the parallels. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how is it that computers do arithmetic the way Egyptians do arithmetic.
0: Well, in chapter I think it's eight of my book. That's where I ended. I start talking very deeply about the relationship between the the Egyptian system and the way the computers multiply. This has been noticed before. Uh, we can't claim any credit to it, but if, if you m- learned how to multiply like I did using a processor with bits, O's and 1's, the the connection is, is pretty obvious because you've seen it before. Uh, to someone who hasn't, it, it's not obvious at all. It's very hard to see the relationship. But w- a computer works in binary because it's O's and 1's. Basically, electricity going through a wire is 1, no electricity going through a wire is 0. It's not quite that simple, but that's the basic idea. So it works in binary, which is just base 2. Like we use base 10, computers use base 2, so everything is in O's and 1's, just like everything in base 10 is O through 9. When you want to multiply the only thing you need to know how to multiply by is zero and one, and they have exactly the same rules that we have. So multiplication is very trivial. But when you multiply numbers in our systems, when you multiply, then the second line is shifted one over. So you multiply you multiply by 35, so you multiply everything by five. Then when you multiply everything by three, you shift that answer over one. In the computer math, that shifting is all you ever do. If you shift things over 1, that's, basic, that's basically multiplying by 2. Just like when we multiply by 10, if I have the number 85 times 10, I kind of shift the 8 and the 5 right, put a 0 in the empty space, So you can think of multiplying by 10 as just shifting a number around. Just like if you have a decimal point, you multiply or divide by 10. The number shifts. The decimal point stays still. The number shifts back and forth. And that's multiplying by tens, hundreds, thousands in in base 10. So all multiplication on a computer just comes down to shifting, which is doubling. And it turns out that if you solve a math problem by doubling and then you look and see how a base 2 operation is done, the numbers correspond line for line. Uh, I can't explain it clearly. You'd have to see a few examples, but if you see the examples, which are in my book, uh, it it becomes quite apparent, and it's very simple, and you don't realize that somehow Egyptian math is like base 2, and that's one of the reasons you don't have to memorize those multiplication tables because in base 2 the only multiplications of course are 1 and 0 which no one needs to memorize.
1: Yes, that that that's a good summary of it. Thank you. All right. Also in the book you you have quite a bit of discussion of fractions. So right. How I, I this is so hard to do on an audio podcast, but yeah, I know. But, but do your best and um, explain what is novel about how Egyptians worked with
0: fractions. Alright. The, the the standard way of looking at it, and I don't quite agree with the standard, but the standard way of looking at it is that Egyptians only use fractions with a one in the numerator, a one in the top. So you'd have numbers like one seventh and one eighth but there are no numbers like two-fifths. This bothers a lot of people, but when you understand it, and as I said, Egyptian math, it's surprising. You think it's an odd way of doing things until you start doing it, and then it seems relatively simple. So what they would do with a number like two-fifths is they'd write it as the sum of two fractions, each with a one in the top. Now, that seems impossible to do, Uh, not impossible, but difficult, but that's because we're looking at the system from our point of view. Uh, The example I use in the book is I I say, well, how could you do it? If I gave you a knife and some bread, how could you calculate two-fifths? So the example I use is let's say you had two loaves of bread and you had to divide it evenly between five people. Well, what I could do is cut each loaf of bread in thirds, the reason I cut it in thirds is that gives me six pieces. And six pieces is more than enough to give everybody one piece. So everyone now has a third of a loaf. But I had six thirds, so I have one piece left over. So what do I do with that one piece? Well, to be fair, i got to cut it up into five equal pieces and hand everybody one of these smaller pieces. So that those smaller pieces are a fifth, of a third, which is a fifteenth, so the Egyptians wouldn't say two fifths; they would say a third and a fifteenth, which sounds awkward until you get used to it, and then you realize it's quite simple.
1: Interesting. I hope okay. people can
0: follow that. <laughs> well, it's it, it, you it's, know, done on a blackboard; it's very easy to see. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a blackboard here. That's
1: that, that that's right. But, hey, this is a good motivation for folks to get the book and work through right. the exercises because you have lots of um, – actually, I have to say, you have fun exercises. They're, they're not just the boring um, exercises yeah. that you see in you know, a lot of these worksheets. Um, By the way, I
0: don't want to misrepresent the book. It's sounding like a pure math book at this point. I promise to the, to the listeners there's a lot of history, a lot of background, a lot of motivation I really spend a lot of time on trying to explain to people why they would do things, how the Egyptian world was, and I tell a lot of Egyptian mythology and things like that to set a background to it. Yes. So, I... Please, please, I know we're talking pure math here, but the book is, 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 I promise you, even people who are not, you know desperate just to do a math, read a math book will find a lot to take away from this book
1: yes you don't have to be desperate to read a math book to really <laughs> in, enjoy this and yeah you know, i think this would be well it's it's, it's only june um, as we're doing this recording and christmas isn't for another six months but i think this would make a delightful christmas present for for any kid who had any inkling of interest in, in math and in arithmetic, in science, in, in, in creative thinking. yes, this, and this is a very hands-on book. This is not a um, ivory tower exposition on mathematics. There is a tremendous amount of um, work through the exercises and get all those ahas and experiences of joy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hopefully both of us have, have made this, this, this point loud and clear um let's see what else you talk about write about other mathematical systems so so tell us about some of those towards the end of the book
0: well when i the the next to last chapter i just i don't want to just do egyptian math i want to do a comparison because one of the points in the book is that egyptian math holds up in comparison to other systems including our own So one of the main systems that I talk about, and I talk about its development from the uh, early days of agriculture and on, I talk about what happened in in Mesopotamia. They used the Base 60 system, which I already mentioned is the basis for our measurement of time and angle, and that's because of the emphasis on astronomy. But they did their mathematics through what we would call today manipulatives. Uh, In some classes... What they'll do is they'll hand you tokens and say, well, this is a, a, a 10 token, this is a 1 token, and they learn to do, say, addition through it. So if I add two numbers, I take two piles of tokens. So if I have 34, I'll take three tens and four ones, and that'll represent 34. And if I want to add that to another number, I push the piles together. But then what I'll do is say if I end up with 12 ones, I'll take 10 of those ones and replace it with a 10. And that shows where carrying comes from. I always find it amusing that these new methods in teaching, they use manipulatives and things like that, are often uh, methods that were used thousands of years ago. In some sense, our our, uh, cutting edge in teaching is discovering the way things used to be done rather than developing something new. Uh, so it was It was actually quite a useful system. It was very physical, very hands-on. You could think of the tokens as objects. Uh, an example I use is cash. You could think of a 10 token as a dime, a 1 token as a penny. And you everyone understands cash, and you can work through the problems quite easily. And you can think of the tokens as representing the objects you're talking about. So if I want to say I sell 3 sheep for... Uh, forty nine dollars each i could put three piles of forty nine dollars representing the uh, amount i'd get for selling the three sheep. push the piles together do the the cashing in as i said and you could calculate what you want it was a very fit physical very visceral system it yes. developed into the basic si- base system and base 60 with the development of writing and uh, it's, it's a good system for many things, but it has serious problems. Uh, one of the serious problems it has is division is just awful in the system, and anyone who's done long division knows what I'm talking about. And you also run into the problem of getting repeated decimals, uh, ugly, ugly multiplications that have to be done within the division, and so on. And that's one of the main, when I compare the two systems, you have to talk about division, how awful it was. And uh, in the book, I'd show some multiplications that get ugly. i show some divisions that can't be done. And Egyptian math isn't perfect by any means. But when you start seeing the problems that we have in our system, uh, you really begin to appreciate uh, the, the Egyptian system. I'd also like to add that when I teach... I teach the base 60 system. What I do is I change the notation. I go to base 60. I change notation to Babylonian. And I have my students basically multiply the way we multiply today. It's just disguised a little bit. And these students who are college math majors struggle to do their system with some slight twist, you know, it's just a slight cosmetic change to it. And I, I point out that you say, you don't remember how hard it was when you first learned to multiply and divide, but you're going through that right now. You're re experiencing what it was like to be a third grader in, 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 in grade school and all the difficulty you encounter with these operations, which is why it takes about three, four years to teach basic multiplication and division using our system.
1: It's, it's very intriguing. I should make the point that a delightful thing that, that I discovered in working through some of the exercises in your book is that once a child learns to do multiplication which as you say doesn't take very long they also know how to do division
0: that's right division with remainders as long as you don't go into fractions you can do division with remainders almost five minutes after you learn multiplication so yeah learning multiplication and division with remainders takes about 10 minutes right which which is
1: absolutely remarkable because yes i think the, the true test of an arithmetic system is when you have to do long division how much fun is it, or or is it not? And it's not it's not at all unpleasant. It's just fine to do it. Yes, if you have the, the remainders with the Egyptian system. So so there is a good point to be made here that mm-hmm. the, when when we ask the question of you know how good is the 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 system of arithmetic that that we all grew up with, I, I think there's an important question that needs to to follow that question. And that question is, what are you wanting to do with that system? As you said, mm-hmm. for some things, like when you're dealing with, with decimals and, and you have to do decimal arithmetic, then, then our system is great. But for many other things, our system is not great.
0: That's right. So, and that's exactly why we have two systems. We don't realize it. But why, why are we taught how to do operations with decimals and then immediately taught how to do operations with fractions? It seems incredibly redundant. But the truth is that you have to know both systems because each system has a serious flaw. And to get around that flaw you have to lear- you have to learn to do things in two different ways. So I said decimal is not good is only good for approximation. But if you want exact answers, it literally doesn't work. Because if you do a division, say three sevenths, and I write as a decimal, it goes on forever. Does anyone know how to multiply, divide, or add things that go on forever? No, of course not. You can't do it. The calculator doesn't mind because it cuts the number off. It just gets bored and says, I don't care what follows. I know my answer's wrong, but it's an estimation, so I don't care. But for exact answers, you need fractions, and that's particularly important for algebra. So I can't express what X divided by Y is in decimal, but I can say, oh, that's just X over Y as a fraction, And now I get an exact answer, which is the way we do algebra. Algebra is always exact. Uh, You know, if 2x equals 3, then x equals 1.5, exactly. Algebra always gives exact answers. But algebra has to use the methods of, say, fractions rather than decimal. I don't know how to write x as a number of tenths, a number of a hundredths, a number of a thousandths. I don't really know how to do that because I don't know what x is. But all of algebra requires the, the fractional method, and that's one of the main reasons we have to teach both, because algebra is so important.
1: So th- this is very intriguing. I have been, been studying and playing with math for decades, and I never considered why we have decimals and fractions. It's, it's one of these things that's completely obvious now that you say it, and you know, for 40-plus years I never thought about that. That's very
0: cool. Yeah, well that's in in the introduction I talk about it. At the, the the beginning I talk about being in a Spanish class and uh, being shocked that there's that the Span- Spanish language is, has inconsistencies and as soon as I point this out to the teacher the teacher starts telling me all the inconsistencies in English and it never occurred to me that English, you know, uh, pa- plural oxen, uh, mice, dogs it it doesn't follow any rules, and it never even occurred to me to think about my own system until I looked closely at a different system. In, and then, yeah. through the, the the lens of the different system, I now see my system in a new light. And that's one of the reasons I think uh, Egyptian math is so helpful. It's not because it's necessarily something new we need to learn, but it makes us think about things we never thought about before.
1: Yep. And I, I, I think it's I think it's great. Tell us about bases. There are right. So so you you know so obviously you know we work with base ten. I assume because we have you know ten fingers, ten toes. That that system was it the was it which was it the was it the Mesopotamian
0: base sixty. Uh, You'd be surprised how how rare base ten is. We're all told that every you know. Base 10 is the obvious base because of our hands. Uh, base 10 was not the main base in the world. I mean, there were lots of different bases. Uh, when you're in, in England, everything is in 12s. Uh, you don't, like a foot, uh, a foot is 12 inches. Uh, they used to have, I can't remember, was it 12 shillings and a pound or something like that? Because the English speaking base was once base 12. The French base was once base twenty, which is why they say quatre vingt for eighty. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Did I lose you. No, I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Go I'm ahead. Sorry, I, I heard a click and then uh, it's silent. So the French describe eighty as four twenties, just like we describe forty as four tens. That's what the T means. So it it's we think of base ten as obvious. The reason base ten is so popular is because the most militarily, culturally dominant cultures used it, and they kind of, you had to deal with these cultures to deal with the, you know, deal with the important parts of the world. So the people that used Base 10 were the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Chinese. And in their various parts of the world, they dominated. So, you know, when you're conquered by Rome, you have to pay taxes in Base 10, you have to... You have to do everything, all your commerce in base ten. So it was really spread through uh, military might rather than it is the obvious base system. And the more cultures you look at on the fringes, the more you realize that base ten was not that common. Mm-hmm. We probably actually have the uh, Egyptians to thank for the base ten system, even though it, we don't. <laughs> I don't teach base 10 as an egyptian thing because egyptians were one of the early mediterranean cultures and they had a lot of influence in their area and therefore you get the, the romans and the greeks chinese did base 10 independently but they are obviously a dominant force in their part of the world so anyway base 10 is not as common as you think uh the uh, hmm. mayans use base 20 too and the mayans were very important they were the first people to discover zero i said that i think i said earlier that the hindus were the first people to discover zero uh, what i really meant is that's where our zero came from uh, the mayans were cut off from the rest of the world so their discovery of zero was created and basically died off with them it didn't influence the rest of the world it was only discovered retroactively that they had it but they used a the base 20 system uh lots of base systems have been used uh Interestingly enough, though, most systems that are used were alternating bases and not a strict base 10 or base 60. So when we think of base 10, we'll think about Roman numerals. Uh, it really isn't a base 10 system. Uh, we say that well, our system's base 10 because if we get 10 ones, we move it up to a 10 piece, and if you, like a dime, and if you get 10 dimes, you move it up to a dollar. So our, our number 154 is like $1, five dimes, four pennies. That's the way base 10 works. Right. But most cultures used an alternating base, which would be like uh, five ones 1s in, in Roman make a V, a 5. Two Vs make a 10. Five 10s make an L. Two Ls make a C. So they keep alternating like that. The Chinese did that. The Babylonians, their base 60 was really base 10 alternating with base 6. Uh, People used the alternating bases almost universally. They didn't use one base. It was only later on. I'm not sure who who innovated that. Maybe the Hindus, but I'm not positive. But it it seems a strange way to do things, but that's the way it was done. I've heard some people speculate because alternating bases come from thinking of your hands, where you get groupings, you know, uh, five fingers in a hand, and groupings of two hands. But that doesn't explain well why the Babylonians uh, used base ten and base six, and why the Mayans used base five and base four, alternating to get their base twenty, and so on.
1: Well, well, the Roman system is even more complicated because you, if you have an an I in front of a V, that means take one away from the five. Right, which Yeah,
0: is win- and that's considered a very backward, that's considered a step back. Uh, some math math historians write about that. It's Yes, it's shorter to write, but it's mathematically inferior. Romans, by the way, are almost single-mindedly the one culture that I've seen in the world that contributed absolutely nothing to mathematics. Uh, they just were not intellectuals. Uh, they were very practical people in some sense. uh but they didn't ask a lot of questions. They didn't, you know, they weren't artistic and, and inventive, if you know what I mean.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Uh. Everyone thinks everyone thinks of the Romans as following the Greeks, but that's really not true. They, they always talk, well, the Romans surveyed the, the 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 Roman Empire, and that's true. But when they wanted the Roman Empire surveyed, they sent a boat to Alexandria. To get Greek and Egyptian intellectuals to survey it. They were uh, great military people. Uh, they were great at enforcing laws. They were great at running an empire, but they didn't. They didn't really care about, uh, you know, what they considered wasteful thinking—a bunch of Greeks sitting around discussing abstract math and things <laughs> like
1: that. Okay, so they so they they outsource their intellectual. Oh, that's right.
0: That's right. There was a famous Roman intellectual. I can't remember his name, but he had, a, he had one of the best libraries in Rome, and he refused to let any Romans see it. But he would only invite in Greeks because he was so desperate for intellectual conversation that he built this library as basically a draw so that any Greek visitor would come in and talk to him. So, uh, yeah, they were, they were pretty low, uh, low on, the, you know, on the idealistic ivory tower math level
1: okay they, they weren't winning any field medals
0: no they were not
1: okay all right so so i need to wind down here but i want to ask you a couple more questions all right. um so first is there a next book or a next big project that you're working on
0: well i'm i'm a, I'm a research scientist and so i'm getting a little uh, grief about not publishing any academic papers so i'm gonna have to do a little of that for a while, but I hope to write an early Greek mathematics book. Uh, this book took me 10 years, so God knows how long it'll take me to write that. I teach it, so it shouldn't take me terribly long, but I'm the type of person who tends to write, rewrite, and so on, so I have no idea when that will come out if it does.
1: Okay, all right, fair enough. All right, and then the, the last question, and this is the question I asked, um, just about everyone, and I get a lot of grief for this question because people say, oh, this question is too broad, I don't know how to answer it, and, mm. and I just smile and say, yes, it's too broad, and I'm just interested in hearing how you think about this question. So the question is, what advice would you give to a parent whose child was struggling with math in school?
0: Uh, that is a very difficult question. Uh, I would I would put the the pressure on the teachers. I think one of the reasons people have so much trouble with mathematics is that it's so abstracted. We teach, uh, you know, operations. We'll say, what is eight times three, parenthesis, blah, blah, blah. And when you take math out of the real world, you can't identify with it. And some students just have trouble with that. There, There are a lot of kids who are considered, say, dumb in mathematics, and you ask them about a a baseball statistic from a team ten years ago and the answer right away and the reason is, is if you care about something you remember it you think about it you begin to understand it and I think a lot of the abstraction that we do in the classroom really takes away from that and makes it much harder for people to learn care about or use mathematics uh, for the parents I would, I would recommend getting your kids to think in terms of mathematics, encouraging them to work with math. Uh, you can do simple things like budgeting, give them some money to spend on a trip, talk to them, well, how can you get the most out of your money, get them actually thinking about numbers, uh, show them any math that you do in the real world. If you're driving someplace, you know, I'm going 40 miles an hour and I know we got this far to go, how long will it take us to get there? What do you think? Get them to start dealing with math in the real world, get their intuition to grasp upon it. And once their intuition get grasped upon it, they can then begin to interpret the world mathematically for themselves. Uh, the other thing I would do is simply try to help them succeed. I know that success breeds success. A lot of reasons people say, well, I'm not good at math, is because they had a bad experience in mathematics. And once you had a bad experience, it's very often easier to say, well, I'm just not good at it. And as soon as you say that, you're, really, you're telling your brain that this is not important. Your brain dumps that information. It keeps the information like the baseball stats that it's interested in, dumps the things it doesn't care about. And if this child is successful, if they do get a good grade, if they're rewarded, uh, that will generate some interest on its own, and then success will breed success. So you have to break the cycle of people saying to themselves, I'm not good at this, I can't do it. I don't believe that's true. I know in Japan they say kids come home all the time to their parents and say, well, I'm just not good at math and the parent turns to the kid and says, well, I guess you're going to study harder and they do better in math than we do. We go pat them on the head and say, yeah, I wasn't very good at math either and then let it slide as if that's an acceptable answer. So Get them working on it. Think about math in terms of the world to motivate it. Help them have a few successes, and hopefully they will be able to carry on on their own after that.
1: that yeah, that, that is a great and very thoughtful answer, and one, one, one thought I had listening to you give that, that answer in terms of practical math. If you ask a kid you know, off the top of his head, you know, what's 25 times 7? And they may not be able to do it in their heads, and they may not want to do it. And but if you say, if I gave you seven quarters, how much money would you have? They would yeah, pretty quickly that. figure out they have a buck seventy-five.
0: Yeah, I know it's amazing. I've done that before. Uh, I, even like I had a student adding three quarters plus the fraction three fourths plus point five, and I said, well, what is three quarters money plus half a dollar? And they they immediately they immediately know it's a dollar twenty-five. Uh, it's the motivation. Uh, It's too abstract. Think about this. If I tell you uh, what's 2x and 3x, the answer we're told to memorize is 5x, right? But if I told you what's two dogs and three dogs, nobody would need to resort to a rule to know that the answer is five dogs, even though it's exactly the same thing. When you think in terms of the world, your brain has a lot of intuition that it carries with it, and that intuition explains and answers a lot of questions. If you just think in terms of general rules that you memorize without understanding, then every problem is different. Everything needs to be rememorized. Everything needs to be uh, learned without any understanding. Your brain hates this kind of knowledge, and it dumps it. You know, it's the type of thing where you study for a test, and two weeks later, you don't remember any of it because it didn't mean anything to you. So I'm a big proponent of putting things in context, and I do that a lot in this book. I try to do as much of the math as possible in terms of real problems, discussing the real problems, why the math relates, how you can understand the math through looking at the physical examples of those problems. And I, I really think that math education has to change. It's been moving in this direction, but I really think it has to embrace dealing with the world.
1: Yes, I yeah, completely agree. Do you have David any closing thoughts before we, before I shut down this recording?
0: Well, I enjoy I enjoyed this talk. I hope people like the book. Uh, if anyone has any questions, feel free to contact me. I'm quite happy to answer questions from people, uh, and thank you very much for having me on.
1: Great, thank you. So there you have it, folks. David Reimer inspired by mathematics.